I'm your host, TCM Chef Raphael, with information that is science-based and current with today's medicinal research. My aim is to instill into your mind and heart a curiosity that can root solutions to your lifestyle and eating choices. So dive with me into the next topic. I have a carrot of a story for you. Carrots used to be white. White, maybe yellow-hued, but definitely woody and not pleasant to eat. Bitter and rarely used as a vegetable. They were probably first utilized by early herbalists chasing after their aromatic greens. And then they would go with their students out into the field and one would eat the root and the class would watch them. And if he didn't turn white, you know, you get it. There is not much mentioning of today's colorful carrot in old traditional Chinese medicine scriptures. The reason I will explain in a minute. It was probably a spice plant way back when. Their botanical cousins like the parsnips and the turnip stayed both mainly white throughout the millennium. They were grown by herbalists foremost for their leaves, fragrance and seeds, much like their distant relatives, the parsley, coriander, many more. The chemical compounds that give carrots their vivid color, carotenoids, are usually used by plants that grow above ground to assist in photosynthesis, but carrots live on the ground. The color change is the result of hybrids. Carrots originated in modern-day Iran and Afghanistan. They contain around 32,000 genes, more than humans, of which two recessive ones contribute to the buildup of alpha and beta-carotene carotenoids. Scientists believe early farmers grew colorful carrots unintentionally and then continued the practice more purposefully to differentiate them from wild ones. Around 1,100 years ago, the purple carrot sort of shows up in scriptures and variety emerges. And only about 600 years ago, and thanks to further selective breeding, the modern orange form, which has lots of beta-carotene, is mentioned. Let us jump to the 15th century Dutch royal history because I have ADHD and so do most of my listeners. Specifically the House of Orange Nassau. It's not entirely Dutch yet. The dynasty was established as a result of the marriage of Henry III, I believe, of Germany, royal descent, and Claudia of Chalon-Orange from a French-Burgundy royal family around 1515. And then there's a bit of family mess, and I'm jumping forward, and a great cousin, barely 11 years old, inherits the family land. Yep, all of today's Netherlands. His name was William of Dillenburg. But as a part of legal demands and honoring the family roots, he had to keep the name William I of Orange. I mean, it's a play of words. Do you get it? Family roots. You want to know where this goes? Well, just wait a little bit. The former Netherlands had been inherited by the Austrian royals in 1482. It then passed to the Spanish Habsburg upon the abdication of Emperor Charles V in 1556, and he gave half of his kingdom to his brother and the rest to his son, who somehow ruled Spain and the Netherlands now at that time. A few days later, he died of gout, it killed him, and he was buried, now counting the carrots from the bottom up. I'm trying to be funny here, okay? 
European royal history, which we have to study as children in school, is a huge brew of wars for ridiculous reasons. Add the politicized Vatican that enforced dogmas created by some serious spun-out characters, mostly male, inbred inheritance claims with a dose of corrupted dukes, vicious earls, irate generals with too much ego and loans, and title theft. Each party manipulated a bunch of people to believe they were better than the others. And you see, nothing really has changed in the last 600 years. Today, same mess, right? Between 1568 and 1648, the Dutch revolted against the Spaniards and the Roman Catholic Church for independency, resulting in 80 years of war. The Spanish Netherlands did not like the Roman Catholic Church and leaned on Calvin, another religious leader for reformed Christians, to rescue them. The kingdoms of Austria and Spain had their own quarrels. Forgotten William, you know, Prince of Orange, the second resurfaced because his dad was shot during the revolt, and they always pass on their names to each other, which adds to the confusion about who lived when. He was also one of the many leaders during the Dutch Revolt, which in 1648 led to the formal recognition of self-governing Dutch Republic. And you wonder where this goes with the carrots, but though William Jr. was assassinated too before independence from Spain was official, he is largely credited as the country's founding father. Not until 1815, uh, 250 years ago, when the Netherlands had a king and a queen again. Hint, just married the right gal. According to the tale, Dutch farmers around 1650 began to develop and cultivate orange varieties of the carrot as a mark of respect for William's House of Orange. The carrots then grew in popularity and spread worldwide to become the vegetable standard hue. Ah, you see, how cleverly I combined this. To this day, the Dutch celebrate the Independence Day dressed in orange, and you can sell anything you want on the street, like a flea market. Yes, you can sell a piano, a car, your wife, your boyfriend, anything. Just smoke some pot before you do that. I went there a few times, and it's such a festive weekend. However, it's just not a factual story. The carrot part, that is. Some documents in Spain showed the cultivation of orange and purple carrots as far back as the medieval period in the 14th century. They just were not called orange. They were called yellow-red. The word orange, as used above, has a different origin as well. Remember that marriage earlier? Well, in southern France, there is a municipality called Orange in French, Principaux d'Orange that had its origin in the 8th century. I'm dragging you through history like a carrot lurked by a carrot. In 1163, a southern France region called Orange was raised to a principality as a fief of the Holy Roman Empire. See, sometimes they did something good. It was a property holding. But the word, the bottom of the etymological root for orange is in Sankrit, Naranga. It was picked up by the Persians as Narang. Then it got to the Spanish as Naranja. As the fruit got nearer to England and the rest of Europe for that matter, it lost the initial letter N and the first A was pronounced more of an O, giving us orange in its final etymological stage. Yup, and finally the Americans call it orange. I have an accent, so I can't even mark it. The carrot 
in the color of an orange is mentioned in Geoffrey Chaucer's Nun's Priest's Tale. The rooster Chanticleer dreams of a threatening fox invading the barnyard, whose color was betwixt yellow and reed. The fox was orange, but in the 1390s, Chaucer didn't have a word for it. He had to mix it verbally. He wasn't the first to do so. In Old English, the language spoken between the 5th and the 12th century, well before Chaucer's Middle English, there was a word geol-red, like yellow-red. Orange could be seen, but the compound was the only word for it in English for the next about thousand years. When Shakespeare uses the word orange, it is always in reference to the fruit. Also, he used an orange tawny shade to point out a lightened brown hue on the beard of one of his characters, I think Midsummer Night's Dream. See, then, the use to pin the hue of a perfectly medium yellow-red would have been compared to an orange fruit. Hence, we find in literature for the next 100 years the wording orange-colored. That drops soon to simple orange, out of convenience, I guess. And that perfectly circles us back to explain why we love to point out how gastronomically intelligent we are by exclaiming, Last night for dinner I ate purple colors and I had orange carrot sherbet. Well, was there orange in it or was the sherbet made of carrots? See, words are really important. When did the carrot become a table veggie? Well, I don't know that either. Well, it's a complicated task to find out who called a carrot a tuber or parsley root, or it was even interchangeably a celery root with parsnip and other herbal roots. Food preparation scriptures from the Greek to Roman got mixed up, and back to Latin confused even further. The ancient Greek called the carrot a philtron, which translates to love charm. Now, that could be indicative as an aphrodisiac. Not sure if they intended to eat them or... Oh, wait, wait, I have to keep a PG. But translation often done by horny monks without culinary knowledge would not have cared if a recipe contained parsnips, carrots or celery. Potato comes much later. Remember, there are more variations of carrots than human genes. Apiaceae or Umbiliferea is a family of mostly aromatic flowering plants named after the genus Apium commonly known as the celery and the carrots, the parsley family or umbellifers. It is the 16th largest family of flowering plants with more than 3,700 species, including, and now I have to read it from a little list, angelica, anise, caraway, celery, chervil, coriander, cumin, fennel, parsnips, parsley, and it goes on and on. Some are extinct, yet I find translations of Greek recipes where the artistic imagination just replaces an herb with something the chef must have thought feels, smells, or looks similar, or has a bitter taste he liked. Jacques Delachamp's plant historian book mentions purple, white, or yellow carrots in 1586, but no mentioning of orange-colored ones. There are some very toxic members of the Apiaceae family. Be careful around the leaves of garden parsnips, which can cause an allergic reaction or rash in some kids and dogs. And never eat parsnip leaves or stems. Medicinally, I don't want to have to explain that, but even carrot greens, and I have friends that throw them in the morning blender because green looks healthy and sounds healthy, should reconsider this. Yes, you can eat your carrot tops. 
Baby carrot greens contain barely any mineral trace amounts a human body could absorb. Mature carrot tops, 100 days or older, produce the best health results, reducing blood pressure and are anti-cariogenic. However, too much, three times per week or more, can cause the opposite effect. So consume them in moderation. This analysis applies also to all those people scooping heaps of spirulina powders. Too much is super unhealthy. Yep, another podcast. I can't talk about carrots without including parsnips. Both are believed to be native to the Eastern Mediterranean area, including the Caucasus. The Roman word for parsnip was bastinaca. Since they were both white back then and their green looked similar, they would have been interchangeably consumed. Parsnips were illustrated in Germany in 1542 and called Bestanachen, a German form of the Roman word for parsnips. Parsnip was a poor man's food, much like potatoes, because they were comparatively produced and stored for a long time. Later, it was introduced into England during the 16th century. Colonists brought them to Virginia and 20 years later, parsnips were very common in Massachusetts. Indians even took to growing parsnips and carrots and those they were spread throughout the United States. Carrots or parsnips in French cuisine is a basic ingredient to making various stocks, reductions and consommés. The preparation for mirepoix, named after an on-off duke, and I'm not going to go back there, is onions, celery and carrots. And as a proud chef, we have our unique blend of measurements in achieving our signature taste. Um, before I die, I will make a podcast and reveal my secret here. Haute cuisine, or the elevated way of cooking, would be the appropriate translation. Eating then was an expensive trend as it is now and was only affordable to a very tiny group of people. But let's go back. 3,000 years ago, man would have ripped edible roots out of the ground, shaken it off or dipped it into the rivers to consume it on the spot. Seasonally, whatever was available on the trees above ground and hesitantly what was below. Remember that tip from earlier on? Have your body take the first bite and wait a few minutes, especially for roots you're unfamiliar with. Hey, surviving means you can be patient. And before the 15th century, roots were mostly in stews, maybe added to bread, roasted in animal fat or stuffed into meats. Today we mix roots with berries, fruit, honey, sugar, chocolate, whatever we find. We also have plenty of salt available, a luxury in those days, but important to preserve food. Salting and pickling were done early in history, but as a staple food fully introduced by the Romans. The word salary derives from salere, a word used when paying soldiers with bags of salt for their duties. It was that valuable. And a little bit about table manners in those days. Well, the Romans ate out of big bowls or off large platters, or food was just served directly on the table. Women ate only amongst men in public when they were celebrating, and these food orgies often led to further hanky-panky. See, Roman cuisine was a mixture of cultural eating etiquette, adapting the Middle Eastern way of eating with bread as a tool, or entirely with your hands. And from the Greeks, they sort of had these picks or long pikes to dip choices in sauces and marinades. Some of these dips were actually made 
or concocted by herbalists that understood the flavor profile and aimed at aiding digestion and reducing inflammation. Otherwise, there was a vomitorium, you know, you go to that special room with this beautiful big bowl and there's a feather and you stick it in and you get it, you get it, you know. So you perch between day-long courses to keep up with the etiquette of at least trying every dish that is served. And everyone drank tons of wine and fermented juices and in between, on hot days, cold fruit jellies were served, which would be in modern day like a palate cleanser <laughs> that's really needed. And I come back to that. Nero is heralded for discovering sherbets, sending helpers into the mountains to bring back ice blocks that were shaved and mixed with fruit syrup. There is plenty of evidence of fork-like tools being used by the ancient Greeks, a two-pronged dagger-esque instrument. However, ladies of the court would void it. They used flat silver spoons as sort of a shovel. Most of the Roman recipes, and some of the earliest are categorized in a cookbook by Apicius, lists the ingredients for stews as roots. Now, I was super disappointed to find that because he's very detailed when it comes to his meats and fish dishes, detailing flamingo tongue salad or snail with oysters. Ugh. When it comes to the side dishes, however, he simplifies in writing mix of roots. He knew about the flavors of caraway parsley and celery or fennel, but he does not elaborate on the root part of it, with a few exceptions. His food orgies are well documented, and he squandered a fortune, his own money, preparing these delicacies and inviting for feasts. I think he died a poor man. It was not the woman spooked by the lack of male eating hygiene. It was actually the woman that caused the introduction of personalized eating utensils. See, kissing as a greeting amongst the Romans was done merely when coming home after a war or, or traveling abroad to check if their wives had been drinking and cheating. And to hide that evidence and for other medical reasons, women brushed their teeth with urine. And I will have another PG-13 podcast one day on the topic of urine, I promise. Later in medieval times, food was served on tablecloth that also could act as a giant napkin for all the guests to wipe their fingers and even their knives on. They had ladles, which they shared. Mm, imagine. The fork was introduced to Europe in the 10th century by Theophanu, the Byzantine wife of Emperor Otto II. It made its way to Italy by the 11th century and had become popular amongst merchants around the 14th century. When the fork was first introduced as a small eating implement, it was normal for people to bring their own knife and fork. And whenever someone threw a dinner party, the guests would bring their own cadenas, a container with their silverware to eat with. This custom then was introduced to France with the entourage of Catherine de Medici. As much as kids nowadays play like computer games or are fans of all sorts of dinosaurs, I barely know a name of one of them. I studied European history, but back to using carrots as food and sauce items. Muzinsnia is the Polish word for soup, vegetables or greens. I bastardized that. I'm sorry, I'm going to get in trouble. The word means Italian stuff because Queen Bona Sforza, who was Italian and married the Polish king in the early 15th century, brought her chef with her. It's an early record of making stock-style broth. 
Avocinsniame consists of carrots, parsnip or parsley root, celery root or celeriac leeks, savoy or white cabbage leaves, and sometimes celery leaves and flat leaf parsley. I got that from her chef's cookbook. Marie-Antoine Carême. 1784-1833, was arguably the world's first celebrity chef. He made Napoleon's wedding cake, I don't know which wife actually, cooking for the Prince Regent of the Royal Pavilion in Brighton, the Romanov family in St. Petersburg, and according to legend created fantastic souffles, flecked with real gold for the Rothschild family in Paris. He's the one that fine-tuned what is today's French cuisine. I have to admit, a hero of mine. He died in Paris at merely 48 or 49 and is buried at the Montmartre Cemetery. I know exactly where. The cause of death is uncertain. His skull is showcased in the Musée National d'Histoire Naturelle and displays evidence of dental decay, which is not surprising for someone working with sugar as he did. As a chef in the Palais Royal and having lived in Paris four and a half years, I would visit his grave with coffee and pastry in hand. And my friends, wondering where my affinity for skulls comes from, well, that's where it started. I bought my first skull that day after the visit of his gravesite. Weird stuff, I know. So let's talk healthy roots. Since parsnip is a low-caloric food option with high levels of soluble fiber, it fills you up and prevents the release of ghrelin, a hunger hormone. They are high in copper, known to rid the human body of lead, and the vitamin K-rich tuber prevents colon cancer. Being high on vitamin B9, a serious antidepressant, and exceptionally amounts of folates found in parsnips, they're perfectly loaded to reduce homocysteine levels in the blood. I love talking about medicine and food. Finally, our beloved orange carrots. They are cooling in nature, and traditional Chinese medicine uses carrots to strengthen all the organs, detoxifying, benefiting the eyes, relieving measles, and clearing body heat. What carrots are indeed famous for is their ability to brighten eyesight. The characteristic orange coloring of carrots comes from their rich, beta-carotene content, which is metabolized into vitamin A, the substance in carrots that helps improve vision, especially night vision. So when you get older, eat your carrots. Keep in mind that less than 5% of the beta-carotene in raw carrots is released during digestion, and you can improve the release to almost half by pulping, cooking, and adding olive oil, a good quality olive oil. High carotenoid intake has been linked with a 20% decrease in postmenopausal breast cancer and up to 50% decrease in rates of cancer of the bladder, cervix, prostate, colon, larynx, and esophagus. Carrots were first used for medicine in Asia over 3,000 years ago. Well, the green, that is. Again, the root of multiple variations of similar plants look alike, and it is often unclear which plant the scriptures intended to highlight. Furthermore, soil competition and area seriously impacts the medicinal benefit of most all species consumed for health. The early carrots were very different from the carrots we see today. They were purple and yellow. So it was not until 900 BC that carrots were first cultivated for food in Afghanistan. And today's result is a long hybrid chain from their ancestry. 
For giggles, let me read a passage from a 16th century herbalist's book. Those who needed a little more help could turn to a beverage that stimulates the lust for love, as well as serves as a general health aid. The elaborate recipe includes several herbs, spices, and a multi-day preparation process. And the process, he says, produces an exquisite drink, the potency of which can be amplified by the extract of carrot. He's not mentioning a color, so we must assume it's the white one. I'm not aware that turnip nor carrots have that sort of power, gentlemen. But heck, before Viagra, I would guess a gentleman of a certain age would drink any elixir that promises no embarrassment later. Mm -hmm. And I'm fully aware of how humorous it is to jump straight into the next topic about bioengineering carrots to be triple the size they used to be in the antiquity. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm trying to find the perfect ending to my podcast and bring it back to today and how carrots play a role in today's cuisine. <laughs> I'm still giggling. China produces over half of the animal consumed products worldwide with a harvest over 16 billion tons of carrots annually. Also, nutritionally, the market purchased carrot does not compare to the medicinal benefits recorded in the past. If you consider that only one-third of this root beneficial essence can be absorbed by the human body, and when you calculate that carrots are now available throughout a year in your neighborhood market, we all can sufficiently benefit from consuming any colors of carrots. Cooked mushed carrots, mixed with a little olive oil, release twice their minerals into the human body. But consumed raw is okay too. Peeled or scrubbed, there is no much of a difference compared with kiwis where the essence that helps sleeping is only in the skin. Yet another podcast, I see that. Thank you all for a fun, chaotic moment through history and listening to my podcast keeping up with me. Please, please share my link with your friends, lovers and beyond. Have a great week ahead. I love you all. And let me know if you think carrots have an aphrodisiac effect on you. I need to know. I gotta stop. <laughs>